when our daughter Isabella was little, she's now 17, but when she was uh, little, we had to prepare the house for the, the things that could cause harm to her. For example, the oven, we always would make sure she knew that was hot and that as she got taller, the stovetop, hot, do not touch the stovetop. I can see some heads nodding with those who have little ones. If there is an iron, it is hot. Do not touch the iron. And all of these things that we would say to her so that she would understand that some things in the kitchen and other places around the house, if you touch them or whatever, it, it could hurt you. And then if she got older, we would make sure that she knew not to go in the street. We lived in Mechanicsville prior to coming to Midlothian, and our subdivision was one that, uh, that had the what you developers might call the runway entrance, where the entr- we lived on the main road, and it's kind of like a runway straight down into the subdivision, and often uh, cars would go too fast, and so we had a, an imaginary line, a boundary line, about six feet in from the edge of the driveway that we would say for her not to go beyond. Sometimes uh, she would walk out to the very edge and put her toes on the edge of that line. And then if she she knew that if she stepped past it, that I would say, okay, come, come back on this side. I was the dad in the neighborhood that would yell at the speeders when they went by. Some of you have have seen the little plastic yellow slow down guy that you buy and it has a flag on top of it. I had that flag out there next to the mailbox and anytime we were out playing and the car came speeding, I'm the dad, slow down, stop it, right? It's my kid. And I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that she was safe. But uh, do not go out in the street is the message. You repeat it. Do not go out in the street. Look both ways before crossing the street. Look both ways before crossing the street. We would repeat these over and again. And then as she got older and started driving, come to a complete stop at the stop sign. Don't do like dad. With the California stop, honey, all right? And now I have a driver who is watching everything that I do. And so stop at the stop sign. Look to the left, to the right, and then back to the left again before we pull out. Left, right, left. Always be checking around your mirrors as you're driving. All of these lessons we repeat over and again to help keep her safe. We need constant life lessons etched into our minds as God's people. That the Christian life, the practices that God desires would become second nature just as the things that our parents taught us about the street and looking both ways and so forth. I'm glad that my parents instilled some of those things in me that even to this day when I walk across the street, I look both ways. And I'm constantly making sure that I don't put my hand down on a hot stove. It's apparent that the Apostle Paul repeated many spiritual lessons to the churches he started and to their leaders. 
we do not have a first and second Philippians like we do the Corinthians and the Thessalonians, for example. But as we get into chapter chapter 3, it's very clear that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians numerous times and also was with them and spoke to them with some of these life lessons. Let's read verse 1 of chapter 3, and I'll kind of point that out, where he writes, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. He told them to rejoice a whole lot. Rejoice, and in chapter 4, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Joy is one of the key words in his letter to the Philippian church. And then in this one verse, he says, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. Repetition. He can't say it enough. The Greek translated no trouble can also be translated, it's not taking a step backward to hear some of this again. It's not a delay. It's not going to cause any delay in your forward progress. Look both ways before you cross the street. And he says, all of this, these words that I am repeating to you, these lessons that I have already taught, but I'm repeating today in this time, are as a safeguard for you all. I did some word study, and the word translated safeguard is the Greek asphalos. It comes from two words, ah, which is a negative um, on the front of a word, and spalos, which means to fail. So this means uh, safeguard is not to fail. Firm, that which can be relied upon. Certain, true, safe and secure. I didn't know this. But the word asphalos is where we get the English word asphalt. How many of you have an asphalt driveway and you have to seal it every year or two? This is a word. And Paul is using this word to provide a safeguard to them. Again, in the house we used to live in up there in Mechanicsville, it had a steep pitch on the roof. On the inside, it was an elevated ceiling or a vaulted ceiling there, and the family room and kitchen were kind of all tied together, you know, one big open space. And when we would have a really bad thunderstorm, we would get a leak in the kitchen on the sheetrock, and I'd have to let it dry out and then get some kills and come in and seal it and then put some paint back over top of it. Well, one time we got a really bad storm and a much bigger leak. And so we had to figure out what's causing this thing. And there was no shingle damage right up above it. And uh, through some uh, help with some folks that came out, we found that the vent pipe uh, farther up toward the top of the roof had a leak. And the, the sealer around the vent pipe had dry rotted and cracked. And when we get this bad storm, the water would rush down and then come down into the vent pipe, and water goes by the path of the least resistance, and the water would apparently come down the ceiling rafters or the joists, whatever you call those, and then it would find its 
place it wanted to fall down and would come in through the sheetrock. And so we had to get up there with some tar-like substance to reseal the vent pipe to keep the leaking from occurring. And that did the trick. If you remember your Bible study back in the story of Moses, I mean the story of Noah, God instructed Noah after building the ark to cover it with a substance called pitch, which was tar or like tar on the inside and out to help seal it so that it would be watertight for when the floods came. And then studying the book of Exodus, the birth of Moses, his story in chapter 2, Moses' mother placed him in a basket, but she coated it with pitch prior to that so that it would be sealed and water-protected, watertight, before she put it in the Nile River. And then you know the story of how the baby Moses was found and how God used him to lead God's people out of Egyptian bondage. Paul is using this visual image to communicate these words are a safeguard for you. They are constant reminders, spiritual truths that can help false teaching from leaking into the body of Christ. These words that are repeated over and again were as a safeguard for them. Maybe they would keep others who had ill motives away and help keep the people strong that they might recognize those things before they caused problems. Paul didn't waste time and got very specific about what these threats were like. Listen to what he said next in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, we who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Literally, the Greek text uses watch out three different times. We don't see that in the English, but it is in the Greek. Listen to the repetition. Watch out for those dogs, which is a, derog which is a derogatory term to uh, express those who were of a distorted sect of Judaism who are trying to derail the teachings of Jesus that the Christians first had to become like them and follow their ceremonial rules in order to become believers. Watch out for them, he says. And then watch out for those evildoers. And then watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. Paul is giving a warning. Watch out, watch out, watch out. And he's using this repetition. They emphasized rituals, religious ceremonies, and good works, and de-emphasized faith and the grace of God. And he knew that this whole issue had been decided back at the Jerusalem conference, which we can read about in Acts chapter 15. But he's repeating these messages that they would not get sidetracked by uh, these false teachings, thinking that one would first have to go through religious ceremonies and do good works in order to be accepted into the Christian faith. And that was a falsehood. To encourage them, Paul shared from his own life experience, his own story of faith, you might say his own testimony. And we see this in 
verse 4 and following. Paul lists all the things he could have boasted about and then even talks about some things he's not proud of, all for the sake of Christ. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Listen to what he says. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He could go on and on. He had the pedigree. It's almost as if he's sharing his stats sheet, if you're into sports. This is all of your accomplishments over the years that you have participated in athletics or in a certain sport. Paul could contend and say, I'm the greatest of all time. He had it all, but he was willing to give it up for the sake of Christ. I liken his list of attributes to a greatest of all time stat sheet most recently of Tom Brady. It is arguable that he is the greatest quarterback that's played the game. You may differ, and that's okay, but since he's recently retired, all this all been in the news, and they're saying that he's the greatest of all time. And listen to some of the things that he could boast about if he stood up the most wins of all time, the most Pro Bowls, the most Super Bowl MVP awards, five of those. The most starts, 316. The most completions, the most pass attempts, the most passing yards, the most touchdowns, the most three touchdown games, the most four touchdown games. And then in the postseason, the most appearances, 19. Games started, 47. 35 of them wins. 10 Super Bowl appearances and seven Super Bowl wins. The most completions, passing yards, passing touchdowns, game-winning drives, fourth-quarter comebacks, all of these successes are not as important to what matters to him most, and he's way able to give it all up so that he could retire and spend time with his family and focus on his personal life. This is an example when we hear all of the things that the Apostle Paul did and could brag about, and yet he's willing to give it all up for the cause of Christ. Plus, he was honest about his past. There were some things he was ashamed of, too. A murderer, a persecutor of Christians. That's no thing to put on your stat sheet, but he does it. And all of this reminds us that we have a past too. And whether good or bad, our past is part of us. And it has shaped us into the people we are today. God can take our past experiences, good and bad, and use them for his glory. And that we might be able to help someone else who's struggling with something that we've struggled with ourselves. And Paul considers all of that 
a sacrifice. All of that given up that he might gain Christ. This is the gain of sacrifice that we gain by losing. We gain by giving it all away for the glory of God. Jesus is our example. He gave it all on the cross at Calvary for you and me. This is the Jesus Paul so loves, and this is the Jesus that he is encouraging the people to imitate. And it's a lesson that bears repeating over and over and over again, even to us today. Verse 7 through 11. But whatever were gains to me, now I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. In verses 7, well, actually right there, verses 7 and 8, he uses the word loss three times, more repetition. Loss for the sake of Christ. Everything I consider a loss. And he gives up all for the sake of Christ, for whom I have lost all things. The word translated loss or loss there is the same word that refers to the cargo of a ship that is shipwrecked. And you lose all the cargo. And Paul knew exactly what a shipwreck was like. He experienced it himself. And he's saying that all of his successes... That which was to his profit, in verse 7, is now as worthless as the cargo that is thrown overboard on the shipwreck. It really doesn't matter to me at all. It's not important. And then in verse 8, a shocking word. He says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. What? Garbage, he says. The Greek is skubalon. It can also be translated as refuse, excrement, rubbish, that which is worthless or detestable. He's saying all of these things that I could use for my gain may as well be thrown in the trash heap. It doesn't matter. And he points out that this walk of life or this way of life for the Christians is only possible by the grace of Jesus Christ through faith. It's not attainable by any good works. It's a gift from God by grace through faith. The grace we sang about earlier in the service. And he says it this in verses 9 through 11. This righteousness comes from God alone. That we are found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul wants to be found in Christ. Eurisco is the Greek word, to be found, to be discovered in Christ. And this is another theme that we see in Philippians, that Paul desires to be in Christ, the one to be one with Christ. And I believe that he is restating that which 
Jesus said in the Gospels, that this is to abide in Christ, to know Christ, to abide in him, to be one with him. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Remain or abide in me, and I, as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And then in verse 5 of chapter 15 in John's gospel, Jesus said, I am the vine and you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul wants to be found in Christ. To abide in Christ. And he's doing that by the grace of God. And he's setting himself as an example for the churches. Not that I have already obtained this, verse 12, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold for me. Brothers and sisters, he writes, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, one thing, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He presses on as if, like Pastor Matthew said, to run a race, to reach a goal, to finish to the finish line. To take hold is to receive your prize after that athletic event, to receive that medal or in the Greek games to receive the wreath that they would award. He says, I want to strain forward like a runner who is straining forward to make it through the tape the very first time ahead of all the rest of the runners. Toward the goal he presses on. And the word is skapos. It's where we get the word scope. It has to do with having a long view, seeing the distant goal in the end, beginning with the end in mind, seeing where we're going. This is why it's so important for churches to be about the work of vision, that we have a sense of where God is leading us and that we want to begin that taking hold of that which God has in store for us as his people and as his church. To win the prize ultimately is what we hope, Paul hopes, we hope for all people, and that is to receive victory in Jesus, to be given a heavenly reward to spending eternity with God because of faith and the grace that we've received. Paul encourages the church to have this kind of view. Verse 15 and 16. All of us who are mature, all who have grown up in the faith, should take such a view of things. And then he says, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. It's okay if you don't understand it right now or if we disagree on something. God will make it clear, he says. And then verse 16, only let us live up to what we have already attained by the grace of God. Let us live up to it. He wants the people to have this same view and he just has to repeat it over and over again. If they are like me, I need a lot of help. If you're like me, you need a lot of help. Need constant reminder. Stop at the stop sign, Dad. 
No California stop for you. Look to the left, to the right, to the left. Look both ways before the cross is street. Don't put your hand on that top of that hot stove. All of these things that we need as reminders. Mature Christians should have this view. And then verses 17 and 18, again, he echoes, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Are there people over the years in the church you've looked up to and you've thought, you know, I really, I want to follow that person's example, that sister or brother. They really have a, a walk with God that I, I, I'd like to have. I want to keep my eyes. I want to imitate what they're doing. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. And then Paul says, for as I have often told you before, again, the repetition, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. There are people out there who try to disrupt what you're doing. But imitate, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Follow the pattern that we have set for you. The one we imitate is Jesus. And then he says this in verse 19 and following. But their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will come again someday, Paul writes, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our low bodies that they will be like unto his glorious body. We are citizens of heaven. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. And we are called to make sacrifices that the world will not understand. But we consider it all a loss for the sake of Christ. The gain of sacrifice is really a willingness to give it all away. Like Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life must lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? We are thankful that we have a, a Savior who has gone before us. A Savior who has made it possible for us to be reconciled with God and that simply by acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and placing our complete trust in Him, surrendering our lives to Him, we can be forgiven, granted a new life, and have the promise of a new resurrected body in heaven someday. 